Well, recently, Karen and I had a chance to take in a play here in Boston entitled The Humans. The drama is set in New York City in a dingy duplex apartment in Lower Manhattan. It offers us a day in the life of the Blake family who are attempting to come together to celebrate Thanksgiving dinner. Mom and Dad Blake have driven in from Scranton, PA, and they walk in the door complaining about the traffic, about the crummy neighborhood, and why anybody would want to live in the city anyway. They brought with them Momo, who is living with them and suffering from dementia, and older daughter Amy, an attorney who is grieving the recent breakup with a longtime girlfriend. The dinner is hosted by younger daughter Bridget and boyfriend Rich, who are living together without being married, as Mom Blake repeatedly points out. Now, as the play unfolds, we learn that each of them and all of them are dealing with hurts and disappointments that keep them from really enjoying the day and enjoying each other. Mom and Dad's plans for retirement have fallen apart. Some bad investments, trying to care for a Momo, and a betrayal that has rocked their relationship. Amy has just discovered she's not going to make partner in her law firm, in part because of a chronic health condition that has suddenly flared up again. Bridget and Rich have high hopes for their careers and their relationship, but they just can't seem to get launched. He's still in grad school, she's still attending bar, and they're still living together without being married, as Mom Blake points out. It's a brilliantly staged play with a two-tier set design. And they spend the day moving back and forth toward each other and away from each other, but never really connecting. In uh, one conversation, uh, the boyfriend, Rich, dares to admit that he sometimes struggles with depression. Dad Blake smugly says, we don't have that in this family. To which Mom Blake says, no, we prefer stoic sadness in our family. <laughs> so there's occasional laughter, moments of tenderness, but they don't last. Some buried hurt, some fresh accusation comes up and drives them apart once again. As the day unfolds, we get the sense that the members of this family really love each other. They want to be close to each other but their own hurts and failures just keep getting in the way. And all the while, all day long, the lights of the apartment are mysteriously blinking on and off, and these loud thuds keep rocking the building like the footsteps of an angry or indifferent God, one reviewer says. By the end of the play, the stage is dark. There's not a human being left on the stage. Quote, as if a black hole had swallowed up the Blake family before the turkey even had time to cool. Just another fun night at the theater. <laughs> it's actually a really wonderful play and worth seeing or reading. But we get it, don't we? We've lived that drama. We've done that Thanksgiving dinner. It's the human condition. It's the human predicament. We... We want more out of life and relationships. We sense that we were made for more, that we're capable of more. But we just can't seem to get out of our own way sometimes. It feels like we're our own worst enemies. Like we can't rise above the brokenness that we constantly find ourselves in. 
Now, I know that's a rather grim way to begin a message, but, but the good news is that week by week in this post-Easter series, we've been discovering that we can, in fact, rise above the brokenness of our lives in this world. And we can rise above it because Christ has risen above it. He has conquered sin, conquered death, and opened the door to new life. He can put our broken lives back together again in ways that are good and even beautiful for us and for the world. And so we've learned that we can rise above suffering by allowing Christ to comfort us with his presence so that we can then go out and comfort others with his presence. We've learned that we can overcome our failures by coming to Christ just as we are with unveiled faces and allow him to begin changing us from the inside out. And today we're going to discover that we can rise above the loneliness and alienation that so often characterizes our lives and relationships. Now, I don't know if you caught the report that came out probably on your newsfeed, just like on mine, the recent report on loneliness in America. Uh, the health giant Cigna did a nationwide survey, and they came to the conclusion that loneliness is at epidemic proportions in our country. That nearly one out of every two Americans say that they are sometimes or always feeling lonely or left out. Nearly half of Americans say that in any given day, they don't have any meaningful in-person interactions. What was most surprising is that the, the loneliest generations turned out to be the youngest generations, beginning with Generation Z, five years old to 18, and after them, the millennials, 18 to 30-something. These are the generations we would think are most widely connected thanks to social media and yet feeling perhaps the most lonely. So what's our problem? Why is it so difficult for us to simply be human and, and relate and connect to the other human beings in our lives in ways that we want to, in ways that are good and beautiful? Well, let's turn once again to this letter that we've been studying this spring. It's a letter that was written from the, by the Apostle Paul to some Christian friends of his, the Christian community in the city of Corinth. And as we've learned, Paul and these Corinthian believers were not connecting very well. They were struggling to overcome some hurts and misunderstandings between the two of them. And so Paul writes this letter that we call 2 Corinthians in part to repair the breach, to restore the fellowship they used to enjoy and want to enjoy again. Let's see what we can learn from it about our own lives and relationships. We're going to look at the whole passage so we get the big idea, and then we'll come back and take it in three pieces. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. So from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a whole lot in there, but the centerpiece of the passage is verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul is telling us that God is able to do something new with our lives and relationships to make them qualitatively and quantitatively better than they are, better than we ever imagined them to be. And he's able to do that in and through Jesus Christ. So let's find out what those new things are that he wants to do. We're going to talk about three new things that Christ, that God wants to do here. We're going to talk about a new way of seeing humans, a new way of being human, and a new way of, you're going to have to wait till I get to point three, human, okay? If you can figure it out in advance, then go ahead, but uh, we'll discover it when we get there. Let's begin with a new way of seeing humans. Look again at the first verse. So from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. From a worldly point of view. Another translation has it, according to worldly standards. A more literal translation would be, according to the flesh. Paul is saying we no longer evaluate people on external standards, age, appearance, status, judging on those external factors whether they are worth our time and attention or not. See, he's remembering that he made that mistake once before with Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus, by worldly standards, was not very impressive. Came from a working-class family an obscure, out-of-the-way town, denounced by the religious, godly people of the day, executed, publicly humiliated as a criminal. Not very impressive resume. And yet, all the while, God was residing in that flesh. Well, Paul doesn't want to make that mistake again. And so he says, from now on, we no longer evaluate people by external human standards, deciding that some are more worthwhile or attractive or impressive than others. No, he says, from now on, we want to see people as God sees them. Some years ago, a photojournalist named David Abranton, Brandon Stanton uh, took on a new project. He began wandering the streets of New York City and randomly taking photographs of people, just people on the street. He began posting those pictures online with a line or two of backstory about that particular person. Well, the photo blog became an overnight sensation. And in a very short period of time, the Humans of New York project has spawned two books, a documentary, and a Facebook TV series. Stanton captures people in the moment, in all their glory, and sometimes their shame. He wants to change the way we look at our fellow human beings, to look beyond the obvious, to look beneath the surface, to see the unique individual who resides in that skin and the story worth telling of their life and experience. And that's what Paul wants us to do, to recognize every human being as worthy of our time and attention, worthy in part because they're made in the image of God, but worthy also because God has paid a great price for them. 
Back up for a minute to verses 15, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Human beings must be something very special, Paul says, because Jesus Christ died for them. Paid a great price. The other night, Karen and I were sitting in the TV room, half watching TV, half having a conversation. I think we actually had the mute button on and the TV was just playing and, and the Antiques Roadshow came on, PBS, the show I'm all, sure we're all familiar with. And again, we were having a conversation, so we're only half watching, but you know how that show goes. Different objects from people's attics and basements and closets are brought before some uh, expert who tells you what they're worth. So as we're having our conversation, we're kind of half watching these different objects scroll across the scene, screen. And at one point, a, a lampstand is put on display. Now, it wasn't this lampstand, but it was one that looked uh, pretty much like that. And it, it wasn't very impressive. It didn't even have a lampshade with it. It was old and tarnished and didn't look very impressive. In fact, it looked an awful lot like the side of the road lampstand we have in the guest room. The one that falls over because it's broken on the bottom. It certainly didn't seem worth interrupting our conversation for until the value of the lamp started scrolling across the bottom of the screen. $10,000. What? Get the mute button. What's the story of that lampstand? It must be something special to be worth $10,000. Paul's telling us a similar thing here. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is willing to lay down his life to rescue and redeem a person, that person must be someone pretty special. And as it turns out, that someone pretty special is every human being. Every human being on the face of the planet, every human being who's ever lived, every human being who's hearing the sound of my voice right now, that's you, worthy of that kind of price. Paul couldn't be clearer. One died for all, for every single one, that everyone would have the chance to be raised to that new life in Christ. C.S. Lewis said it better than I could ever say it in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. He writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Think about how this changes the way we see people, the people we encounter in everyday life, the people you bump into in the course of a day, every person you read about in the paper for good or for ill, every person, even the person who's treated you badly, even the one who votes differently than you do, even the one whose behavior you find troublesome or even offensive, 
every single one, every one of them, made in the image of God, designed and destined for eternal glory, if only they can know how deeply they are loved in Christ. They are so worth it to Christ that he gave up his life for them. He died for the chance, the mere chance of rescuing them, of saving them, of transforming them, and of spending eternity with them. God wants to spend eternity with every single human being, including you. How that changes the way we see people. Instead of seeing dollar signs scroll across the screen of your mind when you look at a person, or beauty points, or status points, just see the cross scrolling across the face of every person you see. That's how worthy they are to God and how worthy they could be to us. Changes everything about the way we make our way through the day. There are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. A new way of seeing humans. Well, secondly, Paul offers us a new way of being humans. Look at verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So Paul acknowledges that human beings are not always the good and true and beautiful people we were meant to be and we want to be. That sometimes we are as old and tarnished and broken and unimpressive as an old lampstand. That we've sinned against each other and against God in ways that create a distance between us and between God. Like the members of the Blake family knocking around that two-level duplex, moving around each other but never really connecting in a meaningful way. And we can go through life that way. We can spend eternity that way, not connecting. And it happens because of things we say and do and think. We, we say things we don't mean, or maybe that we do mean. We think things that are just awful. We're, we're shocked we even think those things about people. We do things that we know are stupid or hurtful to ourselves, to others, to the world, but we do them anyway, and we do them again and again and again. We're so self-absorbed that we don't even notice or pay attention to the people around us, let alone the God who made us. I caught a song on the radio a year or so ago that captured my attention and apparently captured a lot of people's attention too because it's become uh, an international hit. It's by an artist called Rag and Bone Man and the title of the song is simply Human with a deep and soulful voice, the artist sings. Maybe I'm foolish, maybe I'm blind, thinking I can see through this and see what's behind. Got no way to prove it, so maybe I'm blind. But I'm only human after all. Don't put your blame on me. Don't put the blame on me. He goes on to sing about the mistakes he sometimes makes, about the bad luck that happens to people, about his and our inability to put right what's been wrong. And he confesses in the end, I'm just a man. I do what I can. I'm only human after all. Don't put the blame on me. It's a 
powerful truth that speaks to, powerful song that speaks to a truth that we all know to be true of ourselves and the world around us, that we just can't seem to get our stuff together sometimes. Maybe a lot of the time. So to be human is to be made in the image of God, that's for sure. But it's also to be descendants of Adam and Eve, to have inherited this tendency to do the foolish, hurtful, distancing thing, to say it or think it or do it. It's like we have it in our DNA. So are we doomed to keep on living this way? Do we have to just accept the fact that this is the best we can do, the best we can hope for, because we're only human after all? No, Paul says. No, we are not doomed. Yes, we can do better in Christ. In Christ, we can have a fresh start. In Christ, we can find a new beginning. We can become not just only human, but newly human, and someday fully human the men and women we want to be and were made to be. Now understand, when Paul talks about a new creation here, he's not talking about a few minor improvements. He's not talking about the difference between an iPhone 7 and an iPhone 8 or whatever iPhone we're up to, I don't know the number. He's not even talking about the iPhone X. When Paul talks, what Paul's talking about is the difference between an iPhone and one of these a rotary phone, okay? Now, on the one hand, they're both the same thing. They're both phones. They both enable people to communicate. They both provide access to information. They both allow people to connect with each other. But, but the iPhone isn't just a, a, an improvement over the rotary phone. It's a whole new creation. It enables us to do things and experience things we never dreamed possible with a rotary phone. And so it is with, with human beings, with human beings who are in Christ. We're not just a little bit better. We're a whole new creation. There's beauty and goodness and truth and power that's available to us that we can experience and express that we could never have dreamed of apart from Christ. As one translation puts it, they become a whole new person altogether. But how is that possible? How is this new thing possible with all the brokenness that we carry around within us that we contribute to the world around us? All the blame and shame that keeps getting in the way of our relationships. It turns out God has taken care of that brokenness and that blame. He's put it on Christ. Verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, theologians refer to this as imputation. To impute something is to take some value or some burden, some responsibility that belongs to one person and apply it or assign it to someone else. So think of it this way. Let's say you have this tremendous debt. You, you've, you've fallen behind on your, on your car loan or your student loan or your mortgage, way behind, so much so that you can't make it up. And the interest keeps piling up and it's only worse and worse. But then suddenly some wealthy benefactor comes along and takes all of that debt 
and assigns it to his account. And in his wealth and resource, he takes care of it. He pays it all. Well, your debt has now been imputed to him, and he's able to take care of it, which means you are now free. You're free to start over, blank slate, and begin to build a better financial future for yourself. Well, in a sense, that's what God has done for us in Christ. Our debt of sin, our failure, our woundedness, our brokenness, all that debt, all the burden and the consequences of it, separation from each other and from God in this life and forever, took all that debt and he imputed it to Christ. And Christ took it with him to the cross. And there at the cross, he he suffered the consequences of all of it. He said, put it all on me. Put it all on my shoulders. And I'll pay for all of it. I'll wipe it clean. And that's what he did. But that's only the half of the imputation story. Think about that wealthy benefactor. What if that wealthy benefactor now takes his or her resources, unlimited resources, and transfers them to your account? Well, now his wealth has been imputed to you. So now you not only have the freedom to start over, you have the resources to start over. You can actually begin to build a new and better future for yourselves and for your family. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. All the goodness and beauty and grace and kindness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us. It's been made available to us through the Holy Spirit. We can draw on that account anytime, every day, with anyone to show kindness and love and grace and mercy that never would have been possible for us before. We are a new creation. You see, someone had to take responsibility for all that brokenness. We couldn't just play the I'm only human after all card again and again and again. We certainly wouldn't let a serial killer do that. I'm only human after all. We wouldn't let a sexual predator do that. Hey, I'm only human after all. In fact, some women have objected to Rag and Bone Man's song and others like it that sound as though they're just making excuses for men who behave badly. No, they're saying we can't just excuse it. We can't just sweep it under the rug. We can't just pretend it didn't happen. Someone has to do something about it. Someone has to take responsibility. And that's what God has done in Christ. He's taken the burden and the guilt and the brokenness and he's put it on Christ. He's paid and wiped the debt clean. And now he's imputed to us a whole new way of being human. We can show kindness and beauty and grace and dignity like we never knew possible before. So now we're really free, free to start over, free not to, not to be only human, but to be newly human, on our way to becoming fully human. God is not angry and indifferent, stomping around upstairs. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And if he's been that way to us, then we can be that way to others. And that leads us to our third new thing, a new way of seeing humans, a new way of being humans, and finally, a new way of loving humans. A new way of loving humans. Now, we won't spend as much time with this one because we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks. But look at verse 19 and 20. And he has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, once we embrace this new way of seeing humans, this new way of being humans, it opens the door to new ways of treating human beings as well. We're free now. We're free from the need to hurt and push and strive and put down. We're free to love and forgive and serve and show kindness. We're able because we've been reconciled to God and so we can be reconciled to one another. Not only that, we get to help other people be reconciled to one another and help all of them be reconciled to God. This ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people together, God has now given it to us and sent us out into the world to be these kinds of people. Now, we can't die for other people's sins the way Christ died for our sins, but we can die to our pride. We can die to our comfort and convenience. We can die to our agenda. We can die to our opinion. We can die to our need to always be right or have the last word. We don't have to, we can't put people back together the way Christ puts us together, but we can point them to the Christ who does put them back together. And when they see Christ putting our lives back together, perhaps they can begin to believe he can put their lives back together as well. What if we were to be these people? What if we were to be ministers of reconciliation in the world? The kinds of people who bring other people together, who make peace. What if we were the ones who brought men and women together in healthy, honorable, dignified, constructive ways? What if we were the ones who brought black and white and brown and all people together into one beautiful, multicultural community? What if we were the ones who would bring younger and older generations together that we really can enjoy and respect and learn from one another? What if we were the ones who could bring Republicans and Democrats and who knows what else together to actually understand and try to learn from and find a way forward together? What if we could be those kinds of people? We can in Christ. We're free to love people in new ways. Let me share with you the rest of that C.S. Lewis quote. I'll pick up where we left off. You have never met a mere mortal It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And our charity must be real and costly love. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. See how this new way of seeing humans and being humans leads to a new way of treating human beings? What a difference to realize that every interaction we make in the course of a day is moving that other person a little bit closer or a little bit farther to the God who made them and loves them and wants them to become the beautiful person they were meant to be. Every interaction, every business negotiation, every time we sit across the table in a meeting or a conference room, Every time we sit down for a meal with family or friends, every conversation on the sidelines of the game or at a cocktail party, every time we pass papers after a fender bender, 
Every time we post something online, every time we bump into someone in the church parking lot, every human interaction in the course of a day moves people a little closer, a little farther towards becoming that beautiful person God made them to be. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility to love people in new ways. And if we had to do it in our own strength, we could never pull it off. But we don't have to because his righteousness has been imputed to us. We can draw on his love and grace and beauty every day of our lives. So we're not going to spend more time on that today because we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks. In fact, our new teaching series in two weeks is going to be called Neighbor. And we're going to spend the rest of the spring just thinking about how we can love our neighbors as ourselves. So as we finish up today, let me just ask you, what new thing might Christ want to do in your life today? Is it a new way of seeing people have you been neglecting or overlooking or judging some of the people around you? Is there someone you need to see as a person for whom Christ died? Maybe it's a new way of being human. Maybe there's something old, some old hurt, some old habit, some old hang-up that you need to let go of once and for all, that you need to die to and move on to better things. You can do that by bringing it to Christ, being forgiven from it, and free to start over again. Or maybe it's a new way of loving people. Maybe there's someone out there in your life waiting for you to move into their experience with grace and kindness and beauty and point them towards Christ. I implore you, as Paul did, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God so that you can be a reconciler to others. Let's pray. Thank you for speaking into our lives today, Lord, for opening our eyes to new ways of seeing and, and being and living. Lord, as we come to your table in these final moments, we invite you to do something new in our hearts to meet us in these moments, to meet us in the bread and the cup, to do something new in us, something good, that we might do something new and good for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.